We are delighted this morning to have Ken and Doreen Oak with us here in person. And so, yes, in a moment, I'm going to welcome uh, Ken up. But first, we're going to hear our scripture reading this morning that's from Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 3 to 14. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. So I'd like to invite Ken now to come up. As I said, we are delighted to have both Ken and Doreen here with us in person. Uh, Ken has been with us here and preached before in person, and we've had the privilege of hearing him a number of times when we were online uh, throughout the pandemic. Uh, but we are delighted to have you right here in the flesh with us. <laughs> so I'm just going to pray for Ken and Doreen as he comes uh, to lead us this morning. God, we thank you so much for Ken and Doreen. We thank you for uh, their work, their heart for you in Spain with Avant Ministries. God, we pray your blessing on them. We pray that you would inspire them, that you would give them courage, and that you would give them joy in partnering with the work you are doing to bring your kingdom in Spain and beyond. We pray this in your name and pray that you would give us ears to hear the word that you would have for us this morning. Pray your blessing on Ken and Doreen as he comes. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Allison. It is really nice to be here and not on the screen. Um, I, I think I've done three or four different sermons for Court Wright since the beginning of the pandemic. And uh, I did it for our church in Spain, did it for a number of other churches. And the first one, though, I did was for Court Wright. And I did it, and I looked at it, and I had to completely re-record it. Because when you're with a group of people like this, you do this, right? You stand in front and you talk to people and you turn and you look at them. Well, I'm in my living room with my camera on a tripod and I kept looking around the living room as if there were people there. <laughs> you you got to look straight into the camera the whole time because you look like a crazy person. <laughs> like imagine talking to somebody and instead of looking at you, they're doing this. So I had to totally re-record it so uh, I didn't look like a crazy person. You could actually hopefully follow what I was saying. Um, I want you this morning to start, uh, as we're going to go into the, the verses that Allison read for us, I want you to think about the best gift that you ever received. And I don't want you to get spiritual on me and say the Lord. <laughs> Do not say Jesus. 
I don't want you to get all sentimental on me and say, oh, my children or my nieces and nephews. I want you to think in a completely materialistic way. Now, we don't usually start church services that way, but that's where I want you to go. I want you to think about something that somebody bought you or something that somebody made for you and then they gave it to you. Okay, for me, one of the things that takes, that definitely makes my top five is a bicycle that I got when I was nine years old. Um, at that point in time, all I wanted to do was go out and ride bikes with my friends, but I had a problem, and it was that I'm the youngest of three children. Everything was handed down. My hockey equipment was handed down, my baseball glove was handed down, most of my clothes were handed down, and the worst part was my bike was handed down from my brother, but it had been handed down from a neighbor who had been handed down by a cousin. This was a really old bike, and it had rattling fenders on it. I couldn't keep up with my friends. It was just awful. And then one day, it wasn't Christmas, it wasn't my birthday, just randomly, my dad calls me out into the driveway, he opens up the back of the truck, and there's a brand new bike. I never got anything brand new, but there was the brand new bike, newer than all of my friends, and it was mine. And I experienced the joy that probably only nine-year-old boys can experience when something like that happens to them. So think about for you, what's that gift for you? How did it feel when it was given? Obviously, it was your best gift. It felt amazing. Um, but I bet there are some common themes in all of our uh, best gift stories. The, the first one's obvious, right? It was something you wanted, maybe even something you needed. But there's something we often don't think about um, that makes giving and receiving such a powerful experience. And it's what the giver's communicating when they decide to give the gift. Right? The fact that they're wanting and willing to bring you joy is really what makes giving and receiving meaningful. Right? It's completely different, a completely different experience than going out and buying something for yourself. Right? Because something happens that deepens a relationship. Right? You have been working through the Apostles' Creed, and we're landing today on the phrase, forgiveness of sin. Okay? And I find it impossible to talk about forgiveness of sin without talking about grace. And this word grace that shows up all through the New Testament, we can put it up on the screen. The Greek is charis. And, when, and we, if you look at it, you can see this is obviously where we get our word charity. Right? Um, and it wasn't a religious word in the first century. It simply meant a gift or the gift of someone's favor. But in essence, anytime you receive a gift, you're also receiving their favor. And so you can just boil it down to grace simply means a gift. And then the Apostle Paul took that word and he started giving it spiritual significance. Um, he uses it at least three different ways through the New Testament. One is the gift of forgiveness. Uh, the other is the gift of the Holy Spirit that helps us live out this life with hope and freedom. And he actually looks at the ministry that God gave him, and he calls it God's grace to me. My gift, God's gift to me was my role in the church and in the kingdom. And I'm going to focus this morning just on the first meaning of that word grace, the gift of forgiveness. And we're going to dig into some of these verses in Ephesians chapter 1 that uh, Allison read for us, and we'll see how they fit into the context of everything that Paul was saying in Ephesians, specifically on 
what does it mean, the forgiveness of sin? We won't get all the way through to the end of verse 14. Uh, we're going to focus on the first ones, but I wanted them all read because Paul, that's actually one long run-on sentence in Greek. Verse 3 all the way to verse 14. And so we're going to look at those verses and we're going to ask the questions, how did God give the, give the gift? How much did he give? What's God's attitude in giving? And then we're going to look at, finally, why did God give the gift? And when we get to that, some of that might be new and surprising to some of you. But there, I will say there's an irony in the whole book of Ephesians. Um, it's kind of in two parts. The first part, verse, uh, chapters 1 through 3, talk about God's saving grace and how he brought Jews and Gentiles into one church. And then 4 through 6 are almost exclusively how we're supposed to respond because of that and respond to each other, how we're supposed to treat each other and serve each other and love each other. And it paints this beautiful picture of unity in the church. And so the unfortunate irony of these first 14 verses is um, they've been used, uh, the verses in chapter one, they've been used to spark debates that split churches and get pastors fired and, angry, and fuel angry theological debates. And one thing I'm certain of is if the second half of Ephesians is all about keeping the unity of the Spirit through the bond of the peace, the first half was not written to divide us and get us to argue. And so this may drive the theologians, theologians in the room crazy, but I'm not going to focus on the theological loaded words in the passage of predestined and chosen and who was predestined and what that means and when we were chosen. And it's not because that's not important, um, but it's because I'm not sure it's the primary message in this big run-on sentence. Because the main point when you read it through a couple of times is how God was going to give the gift of forgiveness and grace rather than to whom and when. And I say that based on the re repeated emphasis in the text. How was God going to forgive us? And it says, through Christ and in Christ and in him and by him. And if we put the, the next slide up, I know you can't read this. It's way too small to read. But in one sentence, in 14 verses, or 13, 12, 11 verses it would be, 12 different times, Paul says a synonym for in Christ or by Christ or through Christ. And so as we go through these verses, remember that's the key theme. God did this through Christ. You didn't do it for yourself. It was a gift. You didn't go out and buy it. And so as we go through the verses, we're going to try to pull out the answers to a few questions. How did God give the gift of forgiveness? And as you can see, it's in Christ, through Christ, by Christ. How much did he give? What's his attitude as the giver? And we'll save the full answer for that final question, why did he give it, until the very end. I mean, part of the why is really, really obvious. Um, why did we need his grace and his gift of forgiveness? Um, what's the first thing that pops into your mind when I say, I wish I never would have done that? Or, I wish I never would have said that? Or, I knew I should have done that, but I didn't bother. When I ask those questions, most of us don't even want to think too hard about the answers. Right? Nobody is thinking to themselves, good questions, I think what I'll do this afternoon is I'll make a cup of coffee, 
I'll go sit where I can look at the nice new snow in the backyard, and I'll think about all the regrets that I have in my life. All the things I wish I never would have done, and I never would have said, and all those things that I knew I would have done, and I just didn't bother. Wouldn't that be a beautiful way to spend a Sunday afternoon? No, of course it wouldn't. That would be horrible. It would be a terrible, depressing way to spend an afternoon. None of us want to relive the guilt and the shame of our failings. But what would it be like to know that those things are washed away, gone? Um, not just a head knowledge that, well, I know I'm forgiven, but I, man, I still feel it. But to actually look at that list and realize it's no longer your weight to carry, it's no longer your burden to carry. This is why the message of God's grace and forgiveness is so important and why we really need to deeply understand it, because that's where God wants us to be living for those of us who have asked for that forgiveness and received it. So that's where we're going this morning, and I will unpack those four questions. How did he give it? How much? How willing was God to give the gift? So we start off in verse number three that says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And you may look at that and say, okay, what does he mean by every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms? Well, this is the introduction to Paul's sentence. Okay, and what he's about to explain is, here, are, here is what I mean by every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. But in the introduction, we, always see, we already see the answers to two of our questions. How, that repeated piece, in Christ, and how much? Everything, every spiritual blessing, right? And you go into verse four, and it repeats this. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So before the creation of the world, God had already decided how he was going to make us holy and blameless. It was going to be in him, right? We saw it 12 times. Uh, when Adam and Eve sinned, God didn't panic and go, now what am I supposed to do? He already had that plan in place. And we go on and it says, in love, he predestined us to be adopted or for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And again, you see again, the emphasis in the phrase matches the emphasis of the whole sentence. How is he doing this? through Jesus Christ. It's pretty clear that this phrase repeats that, but it also tells us how much he gave. And that might not be immediately evident to us 2,000 years later, but to the Ephesians, they were going to catch this right away. Because what Paul wrote, now your version of the Bible, if you're looking at it, might say that we were adopted as sons and daughters, right? And what, what Paul wrote though, would have only had the word sons in it. It would have actually had the word sonship in it, which was a legal standing, right? The idea was that at that point only in history, only sons inherited anything. And at first our minds might go, well, it doesn't sound very inclusive. But if you go back a few verses, in the introduction to Paul's letter, he said, to the saints, to all of the saints in Ephesus. Okay, so this was to all of the men and all of the women, all of the saints. And so these women in the first century who may have had absolutely no inheritance, earthly inheritance, 
they were given this legal standing of sonship, full inheritance. So Paul's actually 2,000 years ahead of his time when he's saying, we all get this legal standing. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman or a child. You become a full inheritor in God's family. You know, a, a modern-day paraphrase might be, he predestined us to be adopted as children with full inheritance rights, both men and women. And so that's the answer to how much did he give? He gives you the full inheritance. And then as you go on, you start to see the answer to the third question. What was God's attitude as the giver? It says, in all of this, it was according to his pleasure and will. To God's good pleasure and will. God's pleased to do this. It's what he wanted to do. It's what he planned before the creation of the world. You know, all, all other religions, if you go and study them, and even many branches of Christianity, they miss this point. Right? Their premise is that God, or the gods, uh, they don't desire to show us favor. Right? So we have to do things to earn the favor through rites and through rituals and through pilgrimages and through fasting, and it's all done so that we might finally change God's mind and he might think about giving us good things. But this is clearly not the God of the Bible. Right? From, the creation, from before the creation of the world, according to his good pleasure and will, he was waiting with great anticipation to give you the gift. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, full inheritance as members of his family. All right, think back to the story of my new bike, but think about it this time from my dad's perspective. Okay, he goes to the store and he buys a bike, and now imagine him driving back to my house. Right, there's a sense of anticipation, isn't there, for him? Almost anxious anticipation. He's already got the gift, and now he's excited to give it. Right? That's God, who before the creation of the world already had the gift. He already knew that through Christ, he was going to give us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms and make us children in his family with full inheritance rights. But his, his anticipation was quite a bit longer than my dad driving from Canadian Tire to my house. And he was finally able to give it through Christ. And it says it gave him great pleasure. So you see the how. It's always through Christ. We didn't buy it for ourselves. It's always in him. You see how much every spiritual blessing, full inheritance, and you see God's attitude, an anxious anticipation to give us good things, anticipating it from before the creation of the world. And he did all of this in verse 6 there, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely gives us, and again, here's the how, in the one he loves. You go on to verse 7, and Paul just starts to reinforce the point and reinforce the point. In him... Again, there's the how. We have redemption through his blood. Repeating again, we didn't do it. It's through Christ. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. And her, here's the first mention of our problem. Right? Why did we need the gift? Well, we needed it because we needed to be forgiven of all the wrong that we've done. Right? Remember our Sunday afternoon list of things that we wish we wouldn't have done or wouldn't have said 
or should have done but didn't do. And then every time we didn't glorify God, and in every way that we didn't give thanks to Him, right? if we're honest with ourselves, we could fill pages and pages with things that pop into our minds when we're trying to make that list. Right? And this is where the second question becomes so important. How much did God give? How much grace is there for people who can fill pages and pages with their failures? And the answer is incredible. We've got forgiveness, look at the verse, in accordance with the riches of His grace, which means in direct proportion to the riches of His grace. And we're talking about an infinite God with infinite grace, and He doesn't just give some of it. Right, so think about it this way. This is what I'm saying. Let's say I have a debt. I have a debt of $50,000. I have absolutely no way to pay it. And so being someone that lives in Spain, I think to myself, I'm going to find the richest man in Spain. His name's Amiantho Ortega. Okay, do you know the store Zara? He, he started Zara, and he owns almost like half of the stores in half of the malls in the world right now. He can spare $50,000 for me. And so I go to him and I say, I need you to help me, have pity on me, pay my debt. He's got $60 billion, okay? So he can afford it and he has pity on me and he pays my $50,000 debt. What he just gave me was a gift in accordance with or in proportion to the severity of my debt. He didn't give me a gift in accordance with his riches. Right? How much money does he have to give me, um, or how much money he has, has nothing to do with the payment of my debt. Right? His gift was proportionate to the severity of my debt. If he had given me a gift in proportion to his riches, or as big as his riches, he would have given me $60 billion. That would be a gift in accordance with his riches. According to my debt just means he pays my debt. Accordance with his riches is has nothing to do with the size of my debt. The size of my debt doesn't determine how much he gives me. It's the size of his riches that matters. So when an infinite God with infinite grace gives forgiveness in accordance with the riches of his grace, he's not just giving me enough to cover my debt. He's giving me infinite grace. And Paul emphasizes this point when he uses this, this word and says his grace has been lavished on us. We don't use that word very often, that something's been lavished on you. It's, it's a really interesting word, and you find it in other places uh, in the New Testament. You actually find it in the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And at the end of the feeding of the 5,000, they said, and they, were, they gathered up all the food that was left over, and they had 12 baskets. That word leftover is the same root as what Paul just used for lavished. It's the surplus. It's more than what they needed. That's what lavished means here. How much grace does God have to forgive all of the things you've done? Right? All of the stuff that comes to your mind when you say, I wish I'd never done that. I wish I'd never said that. I know I should have done that, but I didn't bother. His grace is lavished on us, and there's infinitely more than we could ever use to cover our debt. When I was about 20 years old, uh, I went to Jamaica on a missions trip, and we were doing hurricane relief work. 
And so this was not an all-inclusive. We were not down on the beach. We were up in the mountains, and I spent my first three weeks in the heat mixing concrete by hand. And there was a water shortage when we were there. And so at the end of the day, what you wanted to do was go stand under a hot shower for 20 minutes and try to get this caked on concrete off of you. But we were given two minutes in cold water. And so for three weeks, you basically never felt clean. And then we took a day off, and we went down to the coast. We went to a place in Jamaica called Ocho Rios. And so if you've been to Jamaica, you might have actually been there. It's this incredible river of cascading waterfalls. And the first thing we did was walk out into the middle of the river, sit under the waterfall, and just finally let the water pour over us. Thousands and thousands and thousands of liters. And when I looked to my left, I saw more thousands of liters that I couldn't even get to. I couldn't use it. And I looked to my right, and there's thousands of liters of water. I couldn't get to that either. That's what it means to have something lavished on you. There's so much more than you could possibly need. And God's grace, Paul says, and forgiveness has been lavished on you. So is that your understanding of God's forgiveness for you? That through Christ, according to his good pleasure, he'll pour out more grace on you than you could possibly need to forgive and remove the burden of your failings. That's what the phrase forgiveness of sin means when we read through the Apostles' Creed. How long is your list of regrets? Like, how deep is your debt? It is insignificant. In, compared to the rich, in comparison to the riches of his grace. So let me summarize this and give us one big thought that kind of turns the idea of forgiveness. But if you don't talk about this, you haven't fully understood the concept of forgiveness. Right? We see how this comes. It's through Christ. We've seen how much. Every spiritual blessing, a full inheritance, lavished on us in accordance with the riches of his infinite grace, and we see God as the willing giver. And so let me return to the question of why does he do it? Why does he forgive us? Because we tend to focus on the question, or we tend to focus this on the idea of, well, he did it because we needed it, because I needed forgiveness. And that's absolutely true, but it's only part of the answer to the question. If we leave it there, it's incomplete. Because if you look through the first, and go through and read the first three chapters of Ephesians, you'll see it's repeated over and over again, and even just in our verses, it's all to the praise of his glory. It's all so that God would be glorified. And you can see that in um, the next verses, in verse 6. It says, it's to the praise of his glory. Um, in verse 12, to the praise of his glory. In verse 14, to the praise of his glory. And the end of chapter 1, there's a whole list of, God, of how God glorified Christ, and that was the point of what he was doing. In chapter 2, it talks about it. And then he lands at a place in chapter 3, verse 10. If we can put that verse up, he explains why is God doing all of this. Well, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be, should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms 
according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a lot of stuff in a couple verses. But you see repeatedly that he gives grace and forgiveness to glorify himself. And according to this verse, he does that to bring us together as the church and put us on display. Do you see that in the verse? We're put on display before the rulers and authorities of the heavenly realms in this invisible world that we don't see of the angels and demons. And they're supposed to look on and they're supposed to be astounded at what God's done. Right? Ephesians, in particular, highlights the fact that Jews and Gentiles were brought together into the church, equally forgiven with God's grace, grace lavished on them. And in the first century, these were two groups of people that by any human standards should not fit together. Right? Humanly speaking, they're expected to be at odds with each other, irreparably in constant conflict with each other. But God brings them together in the church, puts them on display to show his manifold wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, to glorify himself in that way. And throughout the history of the church, this is what God's been doing. He keeps bringing people together with differing opinions and different backgrounds and from different theological flavors. And he puts them together and he's supposed to be on display, absolutely blowing the minds of the angels and demons, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And God's saying to the, to the angels and the demons, look at what I've just done, totally unexpected. I brought the people together that you thought I could never bring together. I've forgiven them in the same way. And they're keeping the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And they're astounded. Think about this idea of being on display. What happens when you're on display? Like, imagine that there's nobody else in the church. You're in the back room over there with one other person, and you're having a contentious conversation. You're not getting along. So you can think about, what's your contentious conversation? Who is that person? Imagine yourself back there, and you're having the conversation. And then you realize, oh wait, Ken set up a bunch of chairs, and there's 20 people sitting in a circle around your conversation now, and they're just listening. How does it change when you're on display? How about if we take you and we put you up here and Dennis mics you up, and everybody gets to sit here and we're live streaming you, and you're on display? How does that change the way you talk to the other person? Right, make it even bigger. We drive you to Toronto, we put you in the middle of the Sky Dome, we fill it with people, you're mic'd up, and we say, have your argument. How does that change? When you're on display, you start to care a little bit about how you might come across. Well, what this verse is saying is it's way bigger than that. God's put our relationships with each other on display before the entire well, definitely before the visible realm, right? The world can see how we're acting with each other. But the whole invisible realm of the angels and demons, so that we can reflect, look at the verse, his manifold wisdom in bringing us together in relationships that make up the church. That's been his plan, if you look at the verse, from eternity past. One body by one spirit, all through Christ and in Christ. 
And when you go from that verse through the rest of Ephesians, Paul focuses the rest of the letter on how we interact with each other, on what we're putting on display. And much of it has to do with how we talk to each other. He talks about empty words, unhelpful words, unwholesome words, truth, instructing words, encouraging psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. And then he lands on the verse that at first you might think, man, I wish he hadn't said that one, because that's hard. He talks about forgiving each other. This is the final verse we're going to look at. He says, his conclusion, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. So what was your contentious conversation you were having in the back room? And who was it with? Or who do you need to forgive? Because you might say they don't deserve it. Well, if it's just as in, if we're supposed to forgive just as in Christ God forgave you, you didn't deserve it either. You might say they're in the wrong. So were you. And can you do it the way God did it? According to your good pleasure? Or is it begrudgingly done? God lavished his grace on you. Are you pouring an infinite amount of grace and forgiveness on the people that you need to forgive, or are you being stingy with it? Are you giving them just enough grace to go, well, I know I'm doing the Christian thing here. I've fulfilled my duty. Just enough to let you also hold on to hope that they're going to learn their lesson that somehow they're publicly going to be showed to be wrong and you're going to be right. And that little piece of justice will be done. Because that kind of a desire for justice is a bitter, bitter, bitter friend. And it creeps into every corner and recess of your soul. It poisons everything. If you're going to forgive each other in the same way that in Christ God forgave you, you need to lavish your grace on the people around you. Extending forgiveness eradicates bitterness. It unties that knot that you've got in your stomach right now that you've allowed to tighten over weeks and months and years as you've relived conversations, as you've thought through what you should have said, as you've you've repeatedly gone through your rationale for being right with your friends or with your family or with your spouse, and then as you rewind the video and just keep watching it all over again, that just keeps tightening the knot in your stomach until you physically can feel it hurting. And the only thing that unties the knot is forgiveness lavishing your grace on the undeserving. Let me read a quote from a friend of mine who's a a great Bible teacher. He says, I would suggest that you don't understand mercy and grace until you've been deeply, deeply wounded. Over the years, I've known many Christians who have been exposed to the message of grace for years, but when they're deeply wounded, it becomes evident they have no real theology of grace, and they travel down a pathway of anger, and bitterness. And it's not until you yourself have to feel the cost of grace and mercy and forgiveness 
that you really begin to understand the grace and mercy and forgiveness you've received from God. In all my years of ministry, I've never once seen a person who was unforgiving, who lacked grace, who lacked mercy towards others, but absolutely delighted in the grace and mercy of God for them. I've never seen it. It doesn't work that way. Show me a person who struggles to show grace and mercy and forgiveness to others, and I will show you a person who cannot experience the freedom and delight in the grace and mercy and forgiveness that God's given them. So here we are on display, and the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms are supposed to look at us and be astounded at the manifold wisdom of God, of his forgiveness of us, with every spiritual blessing in Christ and a full inheritance and his grace lavished on us more than we could ever use. But also our forgiveness of each other, lavishing grace on each other, on those who don't deserve it because we didn't, on those we believe who are wrong. And that's the forgiveness of sin that flushes out bitterness and anger. It unties the knot in your stomach and it actually brings you to a place of freedom and joy. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for this truth, and I will admit it is a challenging, challenging thing. It's sometimes challenging to believe that you actually just poured out your grace on us, and we hold on to our own guilt, and we hold on to our own shame, not realizing that it's been lavished on us. It was in accordance with the riches of your grace, and there's more than we could ever use. And it's challenging as well because some of us have been hurt and we have been wronged. And to turn around and forgive just as in Christ you forgave us is a huge step to take. And we recognize that that's a work that you do in us to bring us into that place. And so for, for people here at Courtright who just now know they need to forgive someone, but maybe don't even feel capable of doing it, I just pray that you would do a work in them to, to show them what that would look like, to uh, show them what that would feel like as well to have those knots untied and the bitterness gone and to fully experience your forgiveness of us and let that flow through us to the people around us. So I pray that the thing that we put on display would be completely astounding to the rulers of the ho and authorities in the heavenly realms and they would see the man your manifold wisdom, the many, many aspects of your wisdom because of how we live together, keeping the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Just pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.